Uh, So to that end, if you would please, let's open our Bibles uh, to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, and this morning we'll be looking at one specific fruit of the Spirit, which is love. Uh, But for the sake of context, what we'll do is we'll go ahead and we'll read verses 16 through uh, 26, so 16 through 26 there in Galatians chapter 5. So let's turn our Bibles there, and we'll read that passage of Scripture. So let's give attention to the reading of God's Word, Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 16. Hear now the Word of God. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Uh, Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Let us pray. Father God, uh, we give thanks, O Lord, for you are holy You are mighty, you transcend all things, Uh, you are omniscient, you are all wise, you are all powerful, O Lord, you are omnipotent, and yet despite your high and lofty estate, you have nevertheless condescended to us in the person of your Son. You have come to us meek, mild, and lowly in the form of a servant. And so we give you thanks, O Lord, that you have condescended from the great heights so that we may know you. Not only have you given us your son, but that you have also spoken to us through your word. And so we pray, O Lord, that as we contemplate your word and as we give thought to the blessings that we have in our redemption in Christ, that you would further conform us to the image of your son that by the power of your spirit, you would produce your holy fruit within us, that you would bring glory to your name, and that you would uh, unite us together in the bond of love. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. I think that we can say that the present context in which we live in our culture and in our nation is one that is ripe with self-love. Uh, University of Southern California, San Diego, UCSD professor of psychology, Gene Twenge, uh, has written a book that is entitled The Narcissism Epidemic, 
where she has conducted significant research to be able to quantify uh, and objectively point to this particular uh, trend within our culture. She says that narcissists, which we would say is ultimately a form of self-love, narcissists like watching themselves on videotape and say that they report self-confidence from gazing at themselves in the mirror. I think maybe I'm not a narcissist because when I look in the mirror, I think, oh no, it's getting worse, (laughs) right? The narcissistic personality inventory contains items such as, I like to look at myself in the mirror. I get upset when people don't notice how good I look when I'm in public. And I like to show off myself. Vanity, she says, seems harmless and often is, but vanity occurs with self-centeredness and causes so many of the negative behaviors associated with narcissism. So there's a sense in which if this is perhaps the broader context of our culture, then if our culture is obsessed with self and self-love, then the idea of calling people first and foremost to love God and then secondly to love one another may seem like an effort that may be dead on arrival. When we consider, for example, the greatest commandments that Jesus himself said that the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. On this hangs all the law and the prophets. We can see that the culture is certainly headed in one direction with an obsession of love of self. And on the other hand, the Bible is calling us entirely to a different direction. And yet, nevertheless, we, I think, can say that the Apostle Paul, as he expounds here upon the fruit of the Spirit, is not talking about something that is ultimately irrelevant. He's not talking about something that we can say is, well, that may have been fine for the first century, but for the 21st century, uh, it's not something simply that we can respond to because the world has changed. Even though our world may seem as though it is far from removed from Paul, we can say that whatever changes that have occurred in history, whatever changes there are in the culture, however far advanced we may think that we are in contrast to the first century, we can say this, the human heart has not changed and continues to remain the same. And in fact, here we can say that Paul, for example, when he identifies the works of the flesh, with which in many respects are all perversions of love in some sense, that there's a, a, we can wonder whether or not he was perhaps looking at social media or looking at the internet when he wrote these things, when he spoke of sexual immorality, sensuality and orgies, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries and dissensions. It may have been the first century, but those things still occur in the 21st century, which means that Paul's words are still relevant. And we, of course, can affirm that the word of God is never irrelevant. And that's why this, it behooves us to understand what Paul has to say here when he speaks about love as the fruit of the Spirit. And so what I want us to do is I first want us to give thought uh, as to where love originates, Because I think that our intention, or at least our inclination might be, okay, Paul is calling us 
to love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And so what that means is we've got to try harder to love. And that, I think, would be misguided. I can put it very bluntly. It ain't called the fruit of the Spirit for nothing, right? So we first want to give thought to where the fruit of the Spirit originates, where love originates. Secondly, we want to define what love is. There are all kinds of people in our culture these days who are trying to tell us this is what love is. And you can't tell me that this is not love. And so we want to understand what love is. And then third and finally, here within the context of Galatians, we want to see love in action. Because it's one thing to say love is a fruit of the Spirit. It's, it's one thing to say that we should exhibit love. But I think it's entirely another when we can say concretely, this is what love is. So where does love originate? What is love? And then what does love look like in action? And I think in all of this, I think we can say that at the end of the day, when we finish our uh, reflection upon this passage, we will see that the truth of what St. Augustine once wrote hundreds and hundreds of years ago when he said this, that we can love and we can do what we will. Love and do what we will. In other words, if we truly love, you can do whatever you want if you truly love. So let's see how this is true by first turning to the question of what uh, are the origins of love? Where does love originate? Now, where a temptation might be that, okay, if we're trying to understand the origins of love, maybe we should look around us, look for examples of love within history, uh, look among human beings to see where do we see examples of love. And on the one hand, that's not necessarily a wrong approach. But I think on the other hand, I think we can say, well, what does the Bible say? Where does the Bible point us to when it talks about love? And there are three simple words in the English language, but 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love. God is love. And that ultimately means, I think, that we should begin there. We can see something of the loving nature of the triune God and why the scriptures would say that God is love when we can look within uh, the relationship among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to see that there within the Trinity, there is love among the three persons of the Trinity. In the Gospel of John, in John 3.35, we see that the Father loves the Son. Jesus says in John 3.35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. John 5.20, the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. John 10.17, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. So we see that the Father loves the Son. But secondly, we can also see that the Son loves the Father. John 14, 31, I do as the Father has commanded me, to what end? So that the world may know that I love the Father. 
So here, the father loves the son and gives him all things. The son loves the father. And how does he show that he loves the father? By doing what he commands. This is an important point that I think so often rubs against the grain uh, of our culture. We think that obedience is a curse word. We think that submission to authority is a bad idea. And yet one of the things that I try to inculcate into the hearts of my own children, as my wife and I are raising them, hopefully to be godly, is to say that, look, son, look, daughter, when we call you to obedience... We're calling you to love. I don't want you to obey out of a sense of obligation. Well, I guess I got to do it. I don't want you to obey out of fear of consequences. Well, if I don't obey, dad's going to take away my phone, which may or may not have happened recently. I don't want you to obey because you fear greater consequences. I don't want you to obey to keep the peace. Well, I know my old man doesn't yell at me if, if I obey him, so I'll just keep the peace and I'll do what he says. I tell him, I don't want you to obey for any of those reasons. I want you to obey because you love God. And I want you to obey because you love your parents. Notice, that's something very different and why many of the reasons so many people obey authority. And this is what Christ is doing with his Father. I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Historically, the Holy Spirit, among other things, has been called the bond of love between the Father and the Son. And we'll look at some other passages of Scripture uh, as it relates to the Holy Spirit in a few moments. But I want us to see first and foremost that it is the triune God who is the perfect manifestation of love. So much so, so much so that the scriptures say God is love. You know, there was a recent line in a movie uh, where one of the characters was saying, I can't do anything else. I can't do anything else. I'm a pilot, and it's not what I do, it's who I am. We might say that about us in certain things. That's not what I do, it's who I am. This is what we can say about God. It's not what God does, it's who God is. God is love. And so when we're seeking to understand the nature of love, that is first and foremost where we must begin. We must begin with the triune God. But secondly, when we're talking about love, I think it's important that we try to define it because there are so many competing ideas and claims as to what love is. Well, I think that we can say that if the triune God is love, then we can begin to circle in and spiral in on a definition of love by looking at the activity of the triune God. In other words, if the triune God is love, then how does the triune God manifest that love so that we can begin to zoom in on a definition? They are perhaps 
some of the most famous words in all of the scriptures, at least this was one of the most famous verses when I was a kid growing up. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. There we can see a clear manifestation of love as the father gives his only begotten son to the world. And in this point, when John speaks of the world, he's not speaking of the world uh, numerically, he's speaking of the world ethically. In other words, many of us use the term world to distinguish between that which is godly and that which is not of God, that which is worldly, that which is sinful. And so when John records the words of Jesus that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, he is saying that God has shown love to that which was utterly opposed to him, that which was darkness, that which was sin, that which hated him, and yet he gave them the gift of his son. That helps us to understand the nature of love. In the scriptures, we see Paul speaking of the loving actions of Christ when he writes in Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here is the love of God manifest in Christ, so much so that Christ dies, as Paul says here, for the ungodly. You know, how many of us have been in circumstances where we have to step in the breach to help somebody who's in trouble? Maybe it's financial trouble. Maybe it's trouble in a relationship. Or maybe it's physical danger. You know, one of the things that I've had to do in the past is that when I've, I've gone running, I go running early in the morning, you know, I take my, uh, my pepper spray with me. Although the one morning I got attacked by a dog, I didn't have my pepper spray, and I was like, wow, you know, it does me no good at home. And when I've taken my kids out, I'm prepared to step in between them and the physical danger that they may encounter, that if there's a loose dog all of a sudden, I, I might tell my daughter, get behind me. And in fact, one time there was a situation where there was a dog and I was trying to get in front of my daughter and I couldn't because she had death gripped my legs so tight. I'm like, you got to let go. I I need to be able to get in front of you so that I can protect you. How willing would we to be to step into the breach, to step in front of somebody if we knew that they were utterly despicable? That they were a criminal, a murderer, somebody of ill repute, somebody of terrible character. Would we be willing to step in the breach, risking harm to ourselves in order to protect them? I think many of us might say, you're good on your own. Good luck. You can handle this yourself. How much more so for people who hate God? who despise him, who are are in utter rebellion to his ways and to his will every moment of our lives. And yet, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is the nature of love. 
When we say, Christ, O Lord, how much do you love us? He holds out his hands upon the cross and he says this much, this much. But in addition to this, Paul writes of the Holy Spirit in Romans 5, 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is why theologians in the ancient church called the Spirit of God the bond of love between uh, the Father and the Son because quite literally, when God pours out the Spirit upon us in Christ, and as Christ does so at Pentecost, Paul describes it as the outpouring of the love of God. While the whole entire triune God is called love, God is love, 1 John 4, 8, it's the Holy Spirit specifically who has the name, the love of God. As Christ pours out love upon us in the Holy Spirit so that we receive God's outpoured love, we who are un. Uh, lovable, we who are sinful, we uh, who hate God, because of Christ's intercession for us, not only does he free us from the guilt of sin, he forgives us of our sins, but he pours out the Spirit who is love himself into our hearts so that we are indwelt by love. And all of this, all of this manifestation of love, all of this blessing from the triune God who is love, begins in eternity before we even exist. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verses 4 and following, in love, God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. He set his love upon us before we even existed. So when it comes to love and defining what it is, it's important that we understand that love is not primarily an emotion. It's not primarily an emotion. I think if we listen to, uh, I was going to say the radio, but that would really date me. If we listen to the, the streaming services, the Spotify and all those other things, so many of the songs that we hear are written about love and they are chiefly and perhaps even mostly about an emotion. Now, I don't want to deny the fact that love does have attendant emotions and feelings. But what is love then chiefly if it is not an emotion? It is devotion to God. It is when we do what God calls us to do. Do you remember what Christ says? I obey the Father that the world may know that I love the Father. That is first and foremost what love is, is when we surrender our will and we obey our Heavenly Father. But it is also when we exercise the love that we have received from God in Christ, whether it's in mercy, whether it's in forgiveness, uh, whether it is in acts of kindness to others around us. Have you ever thought about this, that if the cross of Jesus Christ is the chief manifestation of God's love for us, that I suspect as Christ hung upon the cross, he was not overcome with warm, fuzzy feelings. And yet, how often do we associate love with those warm, fuzzy feelings? Now again, I'm not saying that that cannot be a part of it at times. 
But there are times or there have been times when out of a love for my child, I will get up in the middle of the night when I hear them coughing endlessly because they're ill and I will seek to take care of them even though I'm tired, even though I'm grouchy. And in all honesty, my wife does it most of the time. But every once in a blue moon, I'll get up and I'll do it. And I'll do it because I love them. Or when one of my children is sitting there and is disrespectful to me. And I have every right to punish them severely. And yet, by God's grace, I patiently sit there and I listen. And I gently correct and I say, you're being disrespectful. I don't feel warm fuzzies at that particular moment. But those are actions of love. And again, this is what we see primarily in Christ. I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. This is what lies at the heart of love, is obedience to God's will. And this is why God gave Israel this command in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and following, which has been called Israel's Magna Carta, their foundational command, the foundational document, if you will, of their whole existence. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might." This is what love is. And this is why Christ, in his teaching, when he was asked, what's the first and most important commandment? And out of all 633 commandments in the Old Testament, he picks that one from Deuteronomy 6, 4 and following. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But do you see why he would follow it up with the second commandment, which is like it, love your neighbor as yourself? For on all of this, hang the law, all the law and the prophets, is that if you think of the the direction of love, it's that the triune God loves one another, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then this abundance of love is poured out in Christ through the Spirit upon us individually. So that just as Christ has poured out his love upon us, we then pivot and turn and we pour out the love of God that uh, we have received not only to one another, but we also especially return that love to God. Just as the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father, so as we receive the Father's love, we in turn love the Father. And just as that love has been poured out and flows to everything around it, so too the love is supposed to flow from God through us to everyone around us. So last, and not, and last but not least, what is it that love looks like in action? Well, as I said, and Jesus is explicit about this, to love God quite simply means obeying his revealed will. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, historically, the way that we have understood what it means to obey God and to, and to, and to uh, follow his, his law is that we have to recognize a really, really important distinction 
uh, in terms of how we approach the law because we can either approach it in our own power, which is ultimately not love, it's legalism, it's works righteousness, or we can approach the law of God in Christ and to do so is to approach it in love. And that the Westminster Confession in chapter 19, paragraph 6, makes an important distinction when it says that we do not follow the law as a covenant, but as a rule. There's a big difference, world of difference here. What's the difference? What's the distinction between following the law as a covenant versus as a rule? As a covenant, the divines teach, the law of God requires perfect, personal, and perpetual obedience. It might as well be that it's Mount Everest and we're all the way at the bottom and without any assistance, without any ropes, without any oxygen, without any Sherpas, we've got to make that ascent all the way to the top. Perfect, personal, and perpetual obedience. If we try that, the only thing that will result is curse. The only one who has offered perfect, personal, and perpetual obedience is the Lord Jesus Christ. So if we try to make a run on the law ourselves, we're going to fail. And this is why it's so important that we recognize the origins of love, that love and the ability to love come from God, which is why Paul calls it the fruit of the Spirit. The only way that we can truly love God and truly love one another is if we rest in Christ. Westminster Confession, chapter 14, paragraph 2, speaks of saving faith, and it says the principal acts of saving faith are resting, receiving, and accepting Christ alone for salvation, for our justification and sanctification, and for whatever else is necessary in the Christian life. Resting. Receiving, accepting, these are all passive actions. The way that theologians have described the uh, nature of saving faith is as if it is an empty hand that receives the gift of salvation. And even then we should remember that the empty hand is God-given. Remember Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? For salvation is by grace uh, and, and, and not by works, but is by faith, lest anyone should boast. And so we rest, receive, and accept. In other words, the only way that we can love is when God gives us his grace, when he forgives us of our sins, when he gives us Christ, so that in the power of Christ, through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, who is love himself, God enables us to love, which is why it's called the fruit of the Spirit. We rest in the finished work of Christ. And as we rest in the finished work of Christ, we look to the law and it's a rule to us. Not a covenant requiring perfect personal and perpetual obedience, but rather it's a guide. If you think of the, rule, uh, the law as a rule, think of our union with Christ as the road. And the only way that we can manifest the fruit of the Spirit, in this case love, is if we stay on the road. But how do we know if we've departed the road or where the road goes? Because the law is the guardrails. Or the law is the white stripe on the side of the road that lets us know, nope, you've gone off the road. 
You know, every once in a while uh, when I'm driving, um, I drift a little bit. It's nothing out of control, but my wife gets nervous because all of a sudden she hears the tires humming on the, the ridges on the side of the road. And it's and she's like, hey, 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 are you falling asleep? I'm like, no, 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 it's fine. I, I just drifted over a skosh and I don't like to overcorrect. So I just kind of drift back. That's what the law is like for the Christian. It's those ridges on the road that says it lets you know, hey, 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 you're drifting away from Christ. You're drifting away from holiness. Get back on the road. And so this is how we are supposed to know what it means to love. And I think what we can find in all of this is that I've said that love is not primarily an emotion. But remember I've said it involves emotions at times. So that when we find ourselves turning away from sin, and loving God, God can give us joy. God can give us happiness. So often we think that obedience is supposed to be drudgery because we know that it's going to be God taking away whatever it is that we want and making us do stuff that we don't want. And yet, if God has designed us and God has created us, From eternity, in love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons. And what does it mean to be a son but to reflect your father's image? And how do we reflect our father's image? When we obey him. And what is it that we do when we obey him? That we love him. So that when he gives us the ability to love, he gives us the ability to turn away from our sin, to turn away from selfishness, and to give ourselves unto God in love and to give ourselves to others in love. And that is what fills us with joy and happiness. Even if it's doing things that the rest of the world may look upon us and say, that doesn't look very appealing. It doesn't look appealing to them because they're obsessed with himself. They're obsessed with doing things their way, doing their own thing. If there's an anthem that will be sung in hell, it's, uh, I've done it my way. You know, the famous Frank Sinatra song. But how does, what does love look like in action? Note how Paul begins the chapter in Galatians 5, 6. He says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. The Galatians were marked by divisions. They were marked by dissensions. They were false teachers. And yet he called them to love one another, to yield to God's word regarding circumcision and to love each other. Galatians 5.13, you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. He says, you're free. You're freed from the curse of the law. Now use your freedom to love. And this is what Augustine means when he says, when he says, um, love and do what you will. He's not calling us to libertinism. He's not calling us to selfishness. He's not calling us to lawlessness. What Augustine is saying is when you truly understand what love is, 
that God is love, we see love in his law, and that he has given us the ability to love, that we can love, biblically defined, centered in God, given to us in the gospel, we can love and then do as we will. There's no law against love. You can be sacrificial and there's no command against being sacrificial. You can be kind and there's no law against being kind. You can be forgiving and there's no law against forgiving. And in fact, this is why Paul in Galatians 6.1 even says this. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That's love. There's a sense in which love is the first fruit of the spirit that Paul gives us. And there's a sense in which it's the root, if you will, from which all of the other fruits of the spirit, uh, you know, originate. Gentleness originates in love. Joy originates in love. Peace originates in love. Kindness, faithfulness. And so what this passage and what Paul is putting before us is he's ultimately putting before us a question. Will we love? Will we love our triune God? Will we love our neighbors as ourselves? C.S. Lewis makes these insightful observations when he says this. He says, to love is to be vulnerable. He says, love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Or another way to say that in biblical terms is that in order to love well, we have to die to ourselves and stop loving ourselves as the chief thing in this world and first and foremost love God and then love others. But again, remember the source of love is the fruit of the Spirit. The source of our love is our triune God. In other words, it's the promises of the gospel that enable us to love. And God has poured out love in our hearts through Christ and the Spirit. I close with John's words from 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and following. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another.